Father, we do gather under the name of Jesus Christ because He has established for us, by His blood, a relationship with You, the Almighty. Pardon for our sin, a righteousness that is not our own. By Your Spirit, transformation. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would be active among us even now, changing us and making us. May we listen to your truth with obedient hearts. Lord, may we be obedient. Grant us obedience in all that we hear from your word today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is a joy and blessing to be back with you. I have quite a busy summer with other ministry going on. I'll be in and out the whole summer, but we're continuing our look at the Word of God. This is what we do here at NBC. We gather and we sing the Word of God, and then we study the Word of God with intent to obey. If you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's a passage that sums up the person and work of Christ, that is to say, the message and essence of the gospel. And we're going to study that today. Before you do that, I do want to mention a couple of things. If you're new with us, we are studying really the last will and testament of Jesus to His followers, and that was that we go about our lives, as we go about our lives, that we seek to make disciples of all people. And we've spent some time studying this concept, the last thing that Jesus said some ten recorded times in Scripture after His resurrection is that we go and tell. How is it we're supposed to do this and what's the attitude? We spent several weeks looking at our attitude, the character traits really that should define us as those intent on obeying His last will and testament. And now we've been looking at The gospel truths, what are the truths that we need to share? What are the non-negotiables when it comes to the gospel? And if you remember, I've framed this around the triune God, the Trinity. We are introducing others to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Today we're looking at the second part of this, introducing others to God the Son. I do want to pause here back away a little bit and give you a refresher about why a church gathers. In the New Testament, Sunday was to be called by the believers as the Lord's Day because, of course, that's when our Lord was resurrected. And they began to gather on that day. Early on, in fact, they continued to observe Sabbath, most of them being Jews, and they would observe Sabbath... And then they would turn right around and gather again as a local body and worship and fellowship and sing and study the Son of God. And eventually it evolved to what we do on Sunday morning on the Lord's Day. They would sing, they would fellowship, and then one of the elders would, usually sitting down, read some Scripture and give explanation, explaining and detailing what that Scripture meant and applying it to the hearts and lives of the people. And this would go right along with what Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 to give his life 
to that very task, to reading and explaining and applying that to the hearts of the people. And then they would fellowship and they would honor God by loving one another and celebrating Him. Really, it was all about liturgy. It was all about worship. It was all about a group of people coming together and worshiping their God. In fact, they were called the church. This is, means the called out ones, the people called out from a society, out of darkness into light, and they would assemble themselves. They would gather together to worship their God. Thinking in terms of church history, it was only in recent years did this very simple format of gathering together, God's people gathering together and worshiping and studying the Bible, did that become something different? Only in recent years, that very uncomplicated Lord's Day worship, was that replaced by something that was more of a business proposition, an event, an attractional event crafted and designed to get people to attend, really a, a style of entertainment. The last 60 or 70 years, that's the way, that's pretty much the way Western church has been. Most of us, if not all of us, grew up in that context, that Sunday morning was really more or less about getting people into the church. And so what you do is you survey your community, you find out what would get them, what would it take to get them into the worship center and worshiping on Sunday morning, and then you, you design accordingly. You, you find out what's going to make that church grow, and you do what the community wants in order to make your church bigger. This is really a revolution in terms of how Christians worshiped, but it's pretty much standard. In fact, it's, it's pretty much tradition now, at least for the last 70 years, that this is how people are supposed to do church. Not very long ago, a church on the mainland called me and they said, we really like what's happened at your church in Hawaii and we'd like for you to consider coming out and becoming our pastor. We really like the way that you go through the, the Bible verse by verse and, and do this, only we would have one exception. Could, could you do that on a, on a Sunday night? Because on Sunday morning, it's all about getting lost people in the building. I immediately said, not interested. The church didn't do that for 1950 years, and I'm not going to try to innovate upon what the church and what they did in the Bible. The early church did not think in terms of a business proposition. They didn't think in terms of growing. They didn't think in terms of creating some sort of event that would draw people in. What they thought of as gathering together, learning from the Word, and then going out into the world as evangelist. I think this, the reason I bring this up, I think this points out the deficiency of the modern church because the modern church essentially leaves evangelism to the pastors, the experts, the Sunday morning paid staff. Let, let them do the evangelizing. All we have to do is show up and maybe bring a lost friend or two. Let them do the evangelizing. But in the Bible, it was quite the opposite. They would gather, they would encourage, and the purpose for which they would gather and encourage is to honor God, and the, the way you honor God is by being obedient, primarily to that first and foremost commandment that Jesus gave, commissioning us to go out into the world. 
And so they would gather, they would learn, they would study, and then they would all go out, commissioned by Christ himself, go out into their respective places of the world and make disciples. Now, that's the whole purpose of this sermon series. Obviously, I'm not going to draw a big crowd by teaching Christians how to make disciples. But I believe this is the way that God would have it, that we would come here for training, we would come here for encouragement, we would come here for truth, and then we would thus being sanctified, go out into the world wherever we are and make disciples. It's all of our responsibility. If you are a Christian, it is your responsibility to go and make disciples according to Jesus Christ. Our church, if you're new with us, we welcome visitors, we turn on the AC, we smile, we greet people, we're happy to include new people to our church. But our purpose is to honor God and listening to Him and obeying Him. Our evangelism is not designed around events or programs or plans. Our evangelism is designed around simply every Christian taking seriously the commandment and commission of Jesus Christ to go and tell the good news. And that's why we're looking at this subject. We're looking at it as Christians seeking to obey the commandment of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we're not sensitive to the fact that we have many children probably that are lost among us, that lost people sometimes visit. Maybe you're one of them that you're visiting. I pray that you hear the gospel. You'll hear, you'll hear at least some aspect of the gospel almost every week. That we come here to arm ourselves to be sanctified. This is a, a matter really of discipline. We're disciplining ourselves. It's like going to the gym. We're, we're, we're learning. We're training. We're making ourselves better. We're learning these truths intent on obeying and carrying it out as we go out into the world. All right, with all that in mind, I want us to look at our passage because we're introducing people to a triune God, namely God the Father. We studied last time. And today I want to look at the aspect of introducing others to God the Son. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to begin in chapter 5, verse 18. That'll give us a little context, but we are going to look specifically at the very last verse of chapter 5, verse 21. Now follow along as I read aloud. All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. This passage, particularly verse 21, is often quoted around the halls of NBC, and it, with some other Passages like Philippians 3.9, Romans 6.23 are great summaries of the gospel. And this is one of my favorites in my mind. It's probably the most beautiful in terms of the person of Christ. Obviously, in one verse, all Christology is not contained. You'd have to look 
all throughout the Bible. And that's why we have the whole counsel of Scripture, because there are other things we can learn. But this, in my mind, in terms of the gospel, gets down to the nitty-gritty of the truth of Christ that people should embrace in order to be saved. In the original, Paul wrote in the Greek language, and in the Greek language, verse 21, there are 15 words, Greek like a lot of languages, Greek likes a lot of combination words, there's a lot of words sort of smashed together. Some of you German-speaking people know about smashing words together. Um, I have translated this word myself to 22 words. And like I said, I think it's some of the, 20, the 22 of the most beautiful words in the Bible. These 22 words are going to make up my outline. Some of you may have been with us, I think it was eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, I preached this exact passage, and you'll recognize the outline that just falls from the very words of this passage. What are the first couple of words? Number one, He made. He made. Now, you're looking at your Bible there, if you have an ESV, and you're saying, wait, that's not the first two words. We use the ESV here at NBC. We do that for a couple of reasons. One is because the ESV is a literal translation. I don't know if you know this or not. There's different ways that translations are made. Uh, one is uh, more of a... Uh, 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 summary or a paraphrase where they take a, a different translation such as the King James Bible and they read it and they say, well, this is what I think it means and they make a summary. Some of you grew up in the 80s, 70s, and 80s like I did and you remember the gr big green Bible, the living Bible. We called it the big green bomb. People would carry the big green bomb to church and that big green Bible was the living Bible and the living Bible was not a translation from the originals. Uh, it was a father who took that, wanting his children to understand the Bible, and he sat down with the King James translation, and he sort of just made it sound so his children could understand it. Another way you can translate the Bible is by taking the original uh, documents, the original manuscripts, the Hebrew and the Greek, and reading a large section and then just sort of summarizing what you believe that section is saying. This would be known as more of like a dynamic translation. This would be something like the NIV translation. And then there are translations that are word for word. King James is a word for word translation. The New American Standard Bible is a word for word translation. The ESV is a word for word translation. It's not perfect. If you know another language, you understand that nothing can be word for word. There are words in other languages that need to be spelled out. And there are words that we use maybe that combine a couple ideas that can combine a few words in the original. And so we use the ESV because, one, it is a word-for-word -word translation, and two, it is modernized. So they arrange the words and they fill in some blanks for us. That's a little bit more modern and readable for us, especially for those of you uh, for whom English is not your first language. That's why we use the ESV around here. That is not to say that the ESV is perfect. And I think what we have here is a perfect illustration that there is no such thing as a perfect translation. The Bible came to us in its original autographs as absolutely perfect, completely inerrant, infallible. We do not believe the same thing about translations such as the King James or the ESV. We do believe that there are areas where they are weak or strong or have made mistakes or are stronger than others. And here is such an example. Here in the original, the first two words or the first few words are not for our sake. That's not what the original 
says. On my mother's tombstone, she wanted something specific said of her on her grave. And on that marker, she quotes James 1.1, a part of it, the very beginning. In the most dynamic translations of James 1.1, it says something like this, James, a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ. My mama discovered that that's not the order in which the original is. She discovered that the original puts its focus on God. It technically says, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant. And so my mom wanted to make sure that before she died, we all agreed we would put the original in there because it put the focus not on her, but on God. And that indeed is what we inscribed on our tombstone. Of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant. Well, a very similar thing is happening right here in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. In the original verse... The verse does not start out, the original language, the verse does not start out for our sake, as it's put here in the ESV. It carries from that last verse, the last verse, verse 20, it ends with God. God is doing, God is acting, God is at the front end. And the verb that is attached to God there at the end of 20 is He made. In most manuscripts, it would read literally, God him who knew no sin for us, He made. That doesn't sound very uh, like we would understand that. So I believe the correct translation would not begin with us, would not begin with our sake. It would begin with God's action, and that is He made. If you get the NASB or King James Version, I think even the NIV reflects this, that God made. God made, and that's where it starts. He made. And, of course, the He there is what we see at the end of verse 20. God, He made. And that's the first thing I want us to see here. This whole thing, this whole plan, this whole scenario, this whole massive, detailed story, the history, really, of the world culminating in the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, all of it is God's plan. He made it. He planned it. God executed it. He carried it out. Remember when Peter was preaching to the people in Jerusalem? These are the same people who had been screaming for the death of Jesus and the release of Barabbas. Peter preached to them 40 days later after Jesus had already uh, ascended to heaven. These people had joined the desires of the wicked religious leadership. They had insisted that Pilate, a wicked ruler, let Barabbas free and kill Jesus. And what did Peter say in Acts 2? You guys crucified and killed Jesus, but, he said, this was, quote, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Did an evil Roman Empire crucify Jesus? Yes. Did one of his own false disciples betray him? Yes. Did the religious elite try him falsely and crucify him? Yes. Did the crowd jump in and shout their hatred? No doubt. Definitely they did this. The whole thing was upside down. Society, you could say, was upside down. Evil was good. Good was called evil. But Peter said all of this was according to the perfect plan of God. God did this. He made it. He planned it. This is His 
work. No, he's not guilty of evil, but he is now using evil for his grand purpose. It says in 1 Peter 1 that Jesus was foreknown from before the foundation of the world to be the atoning lamb. That word foreknown doesn't just mean that God looked ahead to the quarter of time and saw what was going to happen. It means that God mapped it out. He developed that scheme, the whole plan involving the creation, the fall, the choosing of Abraham, the people of Israel, the Messiah, His crucifixion. All of that meticulous plan from the very beginning was mapped out by God Himself before the world even existed. He foreknew the whole thing, meaning He foreordained it, meaning He planned it out. He did all this. So it was ultimately God who was responsible for the crucifixion. God, the holy God, the perfect God whom we has learned, we learned last time, is responsible to punish every single evil. This is exactly what we looked at. He laid the sin of those who would believe on the shoulders of Christ, and he poured out his justice on him. Can't forget what we read last time, Isaiah 53, the Lord, the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. It says later in verse 10, the will of the Lord, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God's justice was pleased, it was satisfied, which is what we learned is called propitiation. My point is this whole setup, this whole plan was not some half-cocked reaction that God made when man fell into sin. Some sort of, oh man, we better do something now. We, we really messed up. The people, we better come up with something. Sort of plan B. No, God planned this from the very beginning. If you're in the Reformed tradition, you understand this is a product of a covenant that God made within the Godhead, the triune, intra-Trinitarian covenant that this was the plan, and Jesus being incarnated and becoming a, a child and then a man and living this ministry and dying, this was all part of that foreordained plan by God. And in that foreordained plan, the absolute worst thing that Satan could do was produce the means by which God would redeem humanity. God's justice must be satisfied. God does that. He completes that. God made this all happen. All that happened to Jesus, all that was in His life, all the things that went on, all His ministry was all a plan of the Godhead. He made this. Now that leads us to the second part. He made what? What was His plan? He made Him who knew no sin. That's number two. Him who knew no sin. Who's the Him? Well, it's Jesus, of course. Jesus, the spotless lamb, the perfect God-man, Jesus existed, existed eternally as God. I want you to get this in your mind. As a son of God, He is no less divine than God the Father. In fact, if you do any kind of study in apologetics, you learn early on that in the Jewish mind, in the Hebrew mind, to be the son is to carry all the privileges and authority and power of the Father. That's why the Pharisees got so angry when they encountered Jesus and they said, by calling, him, by calling yourself the Son of God, you make yourself to be God. Those Pharisees understood what Jehovah's Witnesses still don't understand. And when Christ was incarnated, when He was made flesh, at that time we see Jesus then 
submitting himself to God, learning obedience, not learning obedience like we had to learn obedience because we're broken and full of sin from childhood, but he learned obedience in that he existed eternally with God, equally with God, and then being incarnated to this plan, he had to become a son in the sense that he submitted. And he had to learn submission as he went through life on this earth and submitted to the plan that was covenanted in the Godhead before time. Well, that's a little bit detailed, but if you want to understand and explain to others that in God's plan, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth, you need to understand, you need to explain to people that He is totally God. He is holy as God is holy. He is perfect as God is perfect. Scriptures testify that though He was tempted like us, He never sinned. There was no imperfection, no moral imperfection in Jesus Christ. How do we know this? Well, from the very beginning we learn of this because He was, what, born of a virgin, conceived of by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. By the way, I just want to warn you against something I, I hear once in a while Christians say, well... That means he had half of Mary's DNA. No, it doesn't. You're going to get yourself wrapped around a theological post if you try to come up with him being half Mary DNA, half divine DNA. There's nothing said of DNA. And in fact, I believe he did not have Mary or Joseph's DNA because that would mean sin would come through the father or the mother. It could come either way. This was a divine miracle that took place in Mary's womb. Now, did Jesus look like his mother and father? I have no idea. Doesn't matter. Jesus was conceived of by the Holy Spirit, and He had to be conceived of by the Holy Spirit because He could not carry on the original fallen nature of mankind. He had to be uniquely divine, and He was uniquely divine because He was born of a virgin. Or because He was born of a virgin, He was uniquely, excuse me, because He was perfectly and divine, He was born of a virgin. He had to be born of a virgin. Another thing we learn about as we study His life, He lived a perfect childhood. don't have a lot from His childhood, but we do have... Luke chapter 2, which I believe gives us a, a template. His parents' befuddlement and dealings with this perfect child, right? I think all of us would be unprepared dealing with a perfect child. A lot of us deal with children who think they're perfect, especially when they turn 16. They've got it, everything right. I believe that passage, Luke chapter 2, the end of Luke 2, 41 to 52, indicates his full humanity as he grew. You know, he humbled himself to this status of humanity, which means his brain had to be reduced to the size of a regular human being. And he had to go through the process of learning and growing and maturing and stature and wisdom in the sight of man and God. He had to learn about these things. And, and I believe that that passage teaches us this this interplay between him, a perfect God-man, and his parents, but it also teaches us, I believe, when Jesus began to discover and understand who he was, that he was the Messiah. So he lived as a child perfect. He lived in his adulthood perfect, never sinning, never involved in any kind of sin, always following the requirements of the law, perfectly obeying, perfectly obedient to the Scripture's demands. And then Jesus initiated His ministry, fulfilling all righteousness, following even the one appointed by God to call people to have faith in Christ, to prepare their hearts for Christ. John the Baptist, he, 
He identified himself with God's prophet and was baptized. You read his ministry then, after that, his perfect love, his perfect kindness, his perfect devotion, even his perfect anger, all of it totally sinless, totally perfect. Truly, this is him who knew no sin. Jesus perfectly always did what the Father asked, and eventually this took him to the cross. And when you're making a disciple, you're encouraging people to gaze upon Jesus, this perfect God-man. Perhaps you're even here today, you're not a believer. Gaze upon Christ. Consider Jesus Christ. Study the man of Christ. What you'll discover is that he is someone who knew no sin. There's a gentleman, I think he's still alive. Uh, he was instr instrumental in starting uh, the discipleship program called the Navigators. Many of the Christian collegiate student organizations, at least across the Midwest, owe this man, his name's Max Barnett, a debt of gratitude. Max said his whole discipleship idea started when he was in college in the 1950s and 60s when he decided he would just take his Bible and walk down his hallway and ask if there was anybody willing, just knock on each door and ask if anybody would be willing to study the book of John with him. I heard him telling this when he was about 80 years old, explaining this to a group of people, and he said even now that is his preferred method, even preferred over navigators, which he helped start. He said, I just take the Bible in hand and I just ask if someone is willing to go through the book of John with me. And he said, never in all my years of making disciples, if someone is sincerely seeking Christ, sincerely trying to know the truth of God's Word, I've never met one person who doesn't make it to chapter 8 and not be saved. They're so fixed on Jesus, this perfect God-man, that they're drawn into His truth, they're drawn into His righteousness. They see Him as someone who knew no sin. Now listen carefully, we need someone who is totally perfect to save us, don't we? We need someone who knows no sin to save us. Why? Well, people who are dead in their sin can't have another dead person saving them. Dead don't raise dead from the grave. To push the analogy even further, people who are dead in sin cannot be saved by someone in any way affected by that death and sin. It's like a drowning person looking at another drowning person for salvation. You've probably seen or heard of the terrible stories of two drowning people and one climbing atop the other thinking they can get saved. And only the demise of both of them. We need someone who's standing on dry ground, who has no sin, though tempted by sin, though living in a corrupt world, he can't be like humanity giving in to sin. Another reason we need a sinless Savior is that if Jesus, like us, is a sinner, He's under the eternal judgment for His own sin already. Think of it in terms of debt. Sometimes the Bible calls sin a debt. That's one way we can think of it. We have an eternal debt that we owe God. Another person who has eternal debt can't get you out of debt. They can't take on your debt. They have to be debt-free. The debt sinful man incurs is not just like a little sinful wrongdoing here. It's an eternal 
debt. And you can't have someone who has eternal debt taking on more eternal debt. It doesn't work that way. You need someone who is absolutely debt-free. Now, if Jesus were a sinner like this, like us, he would have eternal indebtedness to God and has no position in no position to take anyone else's debt. The person who can take our debt must be perfect, oh God, nothing. From a moral or legal standard, he must be without sin. Also, we need someone who knows no sin because he must be capable, spiritually able, to bear the sin of millions of people. Think about it. your hands are full just dealing with your own sin. You can't take that guilt of someone else and carry that. We need divine, perfect God who can bear our sin. Finally, we need to have someone, another human, who lived in this world perfectly and produced perfect human righteousness. This is an argument for the incarnation of Christ. In other words, for us to stand justified before God, we cannot have stained righteousness, just sort of halfway righteousness, and we cannot have some sort of transcendent in human righteousness. We need human righteousness lived out on this earth. And that's exactly what Jesus provided. Jesus, who knew no sin, his sin was, excuse me, his righteousness was human righteousness lived out in this earth. And that is what Christ, he who knew, knew no sin, provides for us. Well, this leads us to the last two phrases of this verse. He made him who knew no sin, number three, to become sin for us. To become sin for us. And notice that's where I like to place that idea of it being for us. And technically, it doesn't even say for our sake. It simply says for us. When Jesus became sin for us, And the reason I put it there is because it's not ultimately for our sake. Jesus ultimately died for the glory of God. He ultimately died because it was part of God's plan. It was to bring God glory. Yet, that doesn't mean it's of no benefit. We benefit eternally. God did this because of His eternal love and His love for His Son and His love for us. And so those of us who believe, we have this eternal benefit. And so... It is, in a sense, for us, but ultimately it's for God's glory. This perfect, this utterly holy God became sin for us. Now, when we say He became sin, obviously that doesn't mean He experienced sinfulness. He sinned. He didn't suddenly get full of feelings of pride and lust and doubt and selfishness or whatever. It means that He was covered with our sin from a judicial standpoint. This is what we call imputation. He was covered. You could say clothed. He was clothed in our sin. Not His sin, as He had none. Paul would use that language as well. He wasn't sinful. He was perfect. But in terms of the divine courtroom, in terms of the judiciary system of eternity, He became sin. This is imputation. Most people that you talk to will have some basic concept of the idea that Jesus died for others, that He died for others' sin. This is a great inroad. You can start there. Most people believe or at least understand that this is what Christians believe. Our sin was credited to His account. 
periodically we wire money to a missionary or a Christian organization to support them and their work. After usually a little fee, that money is wired directly into their account. It's not their money. We're not paying them for something they did, like fix a toilet here at the church. It's, it's a gift. We've given to, that, to them freely. They didn't earn it. They didn't do some level of work. They don't oftentimes even live here. They're not being paid for some service. They're rendering the church. It is a gift that we've given to them. But when that transaction happens and that money goes into their account, it's as though it was theirs all along. The bank doesn't say, well, hang on a second. We're, we're not really sure you earned this money. That's the IRS's job. A bank just accepts it as though it was yours all along. They don't qualify it. It's just in your account, and you can go get it or use it or leave it in there or earn interest or whatever. It's credited to you as though it was yours all along. You know, that's the language here of Jesus' righteousness. Our shame, or our, excuse me, it's, it's, it's the language that's used in terms of our shame and our guilt, our sinfulness is credited to His account. It's not His. He did not do it but it's given to him as though it was his all along. God looks upon him and punishes him for what we earned, for what we deserve. This is what we talked about some months ago, penal substitution or substitutionary atonement or vicarious atonement. And this principle has been with us really since the beginning of mankind. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, God killed an animal. Their shame was covered. Look at the people of Israel, their worship hints on this theme, this idea of substitutionary atonement, these basic truths of the wages of sin and being death, and that none of the sacrifices ultimately would pay, therefore they must look forward to an ultimate Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And that's what's happening here, this transaction, this imputation of our sin upon Him. Again, this is what Isaiah 53 points at. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. As if Jesus had not proven Himself holy enough, He then comes along and lays down His life we're a bunch of filthy sinners like you and me. Well, that's only half the story. The other part of this glorious transaction is another imputation, and that brings us to point four, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is another imputation. Christ is clothed, clothed with our sin so that we would be clothed with His righteousness. Just like our sin was credited to His account though it was his, as though it was His all along, His righteousness, when we believe, is accounted to us as though it was ours all along. Any person who believes, immediately they are justified. We see this demonstrated in Romans 3 and 4. Everything we do, we learned this last time, everything we do is a violation of this holy, glorious God. It's tainted, it's stained. So even our righteousness, as Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. Even our righteousness is like monopoly money at a real bank. And yet in His gracious plan, God, when we have faith, credits the righteousness of Christ 
to us. It is imputed upon us. We are clothed in His righteousness alone. As if we lived His life. As, we walked, as, as, as if we walked the world like He walked in this world. Now, the righteousness of Christ is applied to us in two ways. Technically, the first way I'm going to describe happens second, and the second thing I describe happens first, but I think logically it flows, and you'll see that as we look at this. One way that Christ's righteousness is applied to us is when we talk about forensic righteousness, it is for judgment. It is for that act of justification. It's that moment that someone has faith in Christ, and instantaneously they're justified before God. That's why it's called forensic righteous, like you're in a courtroom, right? You're standing in a courtroom. Where's the evidence that this person should be allowed into my heaven? Well, the righteousness of Christ is imputed upon us for forensic reasons, and they look at the evidence. God looks at the evidence, and what He sees is Christ's righteousness. And we're granted entry into heaven and a relationship with Him. This is the forensic righteousness of God. In order for us to attain heaven, we don't hold up our, our religious deeds. We don't hold up our feeble good works. We trust in the righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul said, Philippians 3.9, I have been found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. I stand before God, found in Christ, clothed in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. The other kind of righteousness is what is often called transformative righteousness. This is when the Holy Spirit comes to you and begins to change you. Again, in terms of the order of salvation, this actually happens first. The Holy Spirit begins to speak to you, begins to open your eyes, begins to regenerate your heart so that you understand your sin and your condition. He begins to speak to you. The gospel begins to make sense to you, not just in a, in a, in a uh, data way, not just an informational way. It comes to you and it makes sense to your soul and you want and you are compelled to believe and follow. The great thing about that transformative righteousness is it doesn't just start and end in regeneration, the moment of regeneration. It just begins there and God begins to transform you. He begins a good work there and He continues it all the way to the day of salvation when you are glorified. This is the process of sanctification, this transformation that happens. This is the kind of righteousness that Christ offers us. Christ offers His righteousness for us, both transformative and forensic, so that we would have a new identity and that we would have new power and new motivation Paul would say in Romans 5 that just as sin and death reigns when we're lost, grace, truth, and righteousness reigns when, when we have been made alive by the Spirit. Well, this is the idea that we're going to look at next week, Lord we, willing, the order of salvation. The Spirit comes in. He takes residence. He enables us to finally do what's right. We turn in faith and trust in Christ. We're covered forensically for judgment Transformation has begun. It takes us all the way to the point of our death and glorification. 
all of that Christ's righteousness is applied to us so that in Him we are the righteousness of God. Now, let me wrap this up. If you're sharing faith with a lost person, let me just give you a little tip. Don't talk about forensic and transformative. <laughs> you might impress them. But I just want you to see behind the curtain a little bit about what's happening in their hearts. What you simply need to do is open up your Bible, show them this verse. Ask them what they think about this. Help them understand that Christ has come to take on the sin, sins of those who sinned and sinned woefully, that anybody who would believe in Him, their sins are put on Christ. And He's also come to provide another type of imputation, and that is making them righteous before God and changing them from the inside out. He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for what You've given us, this beautiful passage of truth and grace. May we take this as ambassadors and share this with the world. Help us be faithful in this. It is difficult in this world to be a Christian. But God, you've empowered us by your Spirit, and you've given us this command, and you are with us always, even to the end of the age. So we trust in that strength. We believe in the presence of your Spirit with us. We ask that you would go with us. For those who don't know Christ this morning, we pray that they would look to Christ, gaze upon Him, and believe that He has accomplished this so that they would stand before you righteous and they would be transformed until the day that you take them to be with you. We ask this in His name. Amen. Stand with me for a time of benediction. Inspired by that passage I read, Philippians 3.9. Now may we go striving to consider all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ, who for our sake became sin, so that we can be found in Him to the praise of His glorious grace. Amen.